0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. We are continuing this week with our journey through the book of Titus. So if you want, turn with me to uh, the book of Titus and we're in chapter 2. Um, Today we're going to deal with four verses. I tried to do more, but it's not going to happen. So here we go. We're still working through Titus. I'm having a good time in Titus, though. I hope you are, too. Uh, Some of the instructions that Paul gives are going to be similar to those that we already encountered in this chapter. Um, That would be primarily last week. However, we're going to see that um, he was not needlessly redundant when we see these things um, kind of repeated. Uh, He's intentional in parsing out these encouragements uh, to different groups of people. Uh, This should also reinforce for us the value of repetition, right, for the sake of learning and emphasis. I think in our data-soaked reality, we are often tempted to think that what we need is some new directive or word from the Lord, Uh, but most of the time what we really need is to meditate upon the beautiful truths that we've already heard. And pray for wisdom to know how we can passionately live in light of those. Um, I think we have a, a, a self-destructive attitude that I need something new to get excited about. Well, there's a lot of old stuff to get excited about, primarily Christ and his cross, right? That's why Paul said, when I came to you, I sought to say nothing or, or preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. Because really, what else do we need, dear ones? Nothing. I can stay pumped and excited and grateful and full of joy for the rest of my life if all I knew was King Jesus laid down his perfect, precious life for a wretch like me. Amen to that. All right. I had to amen myself on that one. It doesn't happen a lot, but man, that was good. Okay. Uh, so let's read together. I told you guys to turn there and I didn't, but I have a ribbon. Do not fear. Okay. Um, we're going to start in verse 6, okay? We'll go to verse 8. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Okay, so uh, starting back up the beginning, he says, likewise, urge you the young men to be sensible. Uh, this word sensible is loaded, really, in the context of encouraging young men uh, one translation I read, it renders this verse this way. It says, urge the young men to behave carefully, taking life seriously. I think that captures well what is being said there. And, and the reality is we have a severe drought in our day uh, that has a drastic and negative impact on the mission given to us by King Jesus. And our drought is not a lack of rain or a lack of water. Our drought is, is of young men who are willing to live sensibly, taking this life and our assignment seriously and being willing to pick up their cross and follow the way of our master. We have few men willing to echo the sentiment that Paul shares elsewhere when he says that he would gladly spend all that he has and that he himself would even be expended for the sake of the souls of others. I wish we could pick that up. I wish we could pick that mantle up. Our tendency is to always excuse ourselves from gospel mission because of our station in life. We, we're just, we all seem to have this tendency to think we may be the exception. Oftentimes, the older men, we see that they were addressed in the beginning of Titus 2 here. Oftentimes, older men, because they are older and their passion has been replaced with fatigue, they will excuse themselves from the call of Christ to be on mission. Oftentimes, older women, because they are older and they've already served long and faithfully, they will think that maybe. The call, the, the urgent call to be ministers and ambassadors of reconciliation may not apply to them. Younger women, because they are younger, they're often struggling with learning how to be wives and mothers, or, or they want to be, and so that preoccupation can oftentimes um, make them feel like they are precluded from gospel mission. And the younger men, oftentimes because they are young and they're often, they feel unqualified, they deal with insecurity, um, and they want to spend their youth in frivolous pursuits of their perception of pleasure. Um, And none of these are viable excuses because all of us who have been called by the beautiful name of Christ are called then to be a part of the mission to let others know there's hope, that they need not live in darkness, that they need not be chained to sin and death, but they can be set free. The question could, could come, couldn't Paul have said, instead of breaking this down by older women, You know, older men, older women, younger women, younger men couldn't have just said, "Tell everyone to do these things," and made a list, and then, you know, he could have saved some, some paper. I mean, writing was a bigger deal then, right? So, yes, he could have done that, but guided by the Holy Spirit, he had the wisdom to know that we are all masters of excuses, and by breaking down these groups of people by age, and we're even going to see in a little bit that he breaks them down by social class. He left none with the ability to do what we often find ourselves capable of. Because somehow we can read or hear that everyone or all people should not only live our lives in light of the truth of the gospel, but also that we should live our lives for the spreading of the gospel, and we can reason our way into believing that all or everyone applies to everybody but me. Paul eradicates the potential for us to do this by breaking it down like this, because he knows the Holy Spirit guiding him knew our propensity to try to excuse ourselves. I believe it's especially crucial that the strength and passion and zeal of the young men be focused and spent for the fulfilling of the mission that Jesus gave us to love God, to love people, and to make disciples. And I want you to know that that's not a plug for every young man on the planet to be a part of Love City, um, because I I just, if you paid attention, you know I just laid out our mission statement. That is kind of one of our guiding principles. Um, But really, it's just a reflection of the fact that our mission statement is simply repeating that which Jesus gave for all churches who belong to him. Different churches in different places might use slightly different language to communicate the same idea. But if the church who is the bride of Christ, because it is a body of people who were saved by by Christ, are not emphasizing what he emphasized, then something is probably wrong. And that's why for us, our vision is very simple. We want as many people as possible to worship Jesus. We want to introduce as many people as possible to the King of glory who loves them. And our mission, the way we're going to accomplish the vision we're going to love God and love people and make disciples. And I don't see a lot of room for the bride of Christ to vary from those very simple things that Jesus seemed to emphasize to us. And we need, we need young men to passionately rise up for that. We need young men to rise up and man up and take seriously the fact that King Jesus left us here and he sent his Holy Spirit so we may be empowered to get the job done. Because there is a job to do. Is there a lot of people today... Have you encountered anybody maybe in the last week that you think possibly doesn't know that Jesus is worthy to be worshipped for eternity? Have you come into contact with somebody? Because we can say it that way, and that's a bummer, but on the other end of it, what do we know about that person? That if if this life was to end for them and eternity was to begin, if they are in that state, they are not in a good spot. And so our love for God that comes first because he loved us should then be reflected into an incredibly passionate love for people that not leads just to lip service but a willingness to lay our lives down for the sake of getting them the good news of the gospel. And then being willing not just to share that with them but intentionally invest in their life so that they can become a disciple. And then the great hope is that they do the same thing. That's how this looks. It's it's simpler than we make it sometimes. Um, But we do have a job to do. I'm also really glad that uh, David in the Scriptures didn't just walk away from the situation with Goliath because him and his buddies were supposed to go swimming later on that afternoon, right? There's, there's some times where it's very crucial in the Scriptures. I think there's times where it's very crucial every single day in the midst of the mission that we're called to that young men are on point doing what it is that God has called them to do, what he made them for. Um, if, if you're not familiar with that story, most of you at least know some parts of it, but here, here's what happened. David comes to essentially bring lunch to his brothers. not a very glorious task, but he shows up. And what had happened is the Philistines and, and the armies of Israel had kind of lined up. Um, there's this valley called the Valley of Elah, and then there's two mountainsides, right? And so it's, it's like this epic setup. And so you've got the Israelites on one side, the Philistines on one side, and uh, they're kind of standing there staring at each other. And, uh, day after day for a few days, out comes this, this guy named Goliath. He's described as a giant. It said his spear was so big that, that the shaft of it was like a weaver's beam. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds big and really intimidating. And uh, if, you look, if you look at like breakdown, it gives you the shekels and stuff of the weight of, of, of his spearhead. It was like 50 pounds. And I don't know if you've ever picked up a 50 pound dumbbell, but imagine a spear being hurled with that kind of momentum behind it. It's a big guy. Um, Based on what we know about Philistine culture, probably raised as a warrior from the jump. And so he's coming out, and he's screaming at the armies of Israel every day. And he's saying, what are, what are we doing here? Am I not a man? Do you not have a man? Send somebody out here. We'll fight. If, if I win, you're our slaves, and vice versa. You win, we'll be your slaves. So this guy's pretty confident. And he's cursing uh, and, and, and essentially just mocking the armies of God. And so here comes David. Uh, we don't know his age, but you know he was quite young, in his, maybe even in his early teens. And uh, he shows up, uh, brings his brother lunch, and, and he's you know, about to take off. And, and then he hears this guy out there screaming this stuff, uh, defaming God, disrespecting God. And all of a sudden, David has this just holy anger rise up in him. and He starts looking around, and he's like, what, what is going on here? This guy is over here cursing our God is somebody not going to do something or say something about that? And everyone's like, get out of here, kid. Like, you're too young to even be worried about it. Why are you even here? Get out of here. And, uh, you know, finally, um, the king says, I mean, he realizes he needs to save face. He's got to get somebody to get motivated to go fight this guy because they're really being shamed openly. And so he puts out a, puts out a prize and says, whoever beats this guy um, can have my daughter in marriage, which... Um, It's not that cool on his part, but we'll just chalk it up to culture. So, anyways, he does that. David goes up and he says, "Listen, I can, I'll I'll handle it. I I see nobody else is, so I'll step up." And he's, you know, Saul's like, "Hold on, son, you're a little guy, and I don't know why you think you're capable of doing this, but you're just a shepherd." And and go read this, man. If you if you haven't been fired up about what it means to walk with God in a while, just go read the way David talks. He says, "King, hold on a second, man. I, I I watch after my father's sheep." And he said, one day a lion came. You know what? I killed that lion. He said, another day a bear came to steal those sheep. And you know what I did? I killed that bear. And, he, and here's what he said. He said, this Philistine, it'd be no different. And so the king tries to put his armor on him, and he's like, look, I can't use all this. Here, you, you take all, all this man-made stuff that's supposed to help. You, you you take that. David takes a trek down to the stream, grabs five stones, and he's got a sling. He rolls up to the battle line. This is where it gets really brick. Um, I wish somebody with like some serious budget would make this into a movie and not botch it like the rest of them. Um, so he, he walks up there and, and, and Goliath's like indignant. He is, he's like totally insulted that this little David who is described as a ruddy youth with fair appearance, um, I mean he's like Justin Bieber, right, rolling up to the battle line, okay? And uh, Goliath's not happy about that. He's like, you know, because he's got a staff, he's got his sling. He's like, what you coming at me with sticks, boy? I'm gonna, I'm gonna smash you. What are you, what are you even doing here? And and this David's trash talk is like maybe the most epic in all of history. He starts saying he's like, listen, man, you come with me, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. Let me tell you something. I'm coming against you in the name of the living God. And this day, today, I'm gonna feed your body and the body of all your friends to the birds of the air. So let's get it on. <laughs> And it says they just start running at each other. you got to go read this. They, I, mean, I can just see it in my mind. I am so, like, literally, I, my adrenaline's pumping just thinking about it. I could flip this whole table over right here. <laughs> and so he just takes off after him, right? And, and, and you can just see it in your mind. And David loads up a stone, lets that thing go, and just right between the eyes, puts him down, cuts his head off, man. And um, I guess all I'm saying in this is there was a bunch of battle, uh, battle-hardened, seasoned soldiers who were standing on the other side, cowering behind the rocks as Goliath came out and bellowed these challenges, not only to the the people of God and the army of God, but to God himself. And nothing rose up. There was something wrong with them that they did not rise up in the same indignant anger and holy anger that David did. David showed up, and the first time he heard anybody talking that kind of smack to his God, he's like, oh no, it's going down. And he stepped up and he handled business. And I'm that overarching situation, I think, very much describes and illustrates God's intention for young men. Because, let's face it, David was anointed by God for this task, no doubt. There was, God's hand was in it. It was his trust in God that ended up him, a ruddy little Justin Bieber-looking youth, being able to whoop Goliath. This was not something he did in his own strength, yes. But here's the other side of it I think is part of it. I think he was just I think he was just young enough to not overanalyze the potential consequences. I think there's something to that as well. And that's why God was able to use him, right? Cuz God could have anointed any of those other guys that were standing there shaking in their armor. Had they been willing to step up in faith and say, "No, no, no, sir. Talk trash about whatever you want, but you start talking trash about God, we got a problem." right? He, God could have anointed anybody to do that, but it was David that stood up. It was da- David who was fearless, not because he thought he was bad, but because he knew God was. And he didn't sit there and think about it. I know those older guys, they'd been in a lot of battles. They'd seen a lot of people win. They'd seen a lot of people lose. They'd seen a lot of blood. They'd seen a lot of people the size of that guy over there that's screaming, whoop, a whole bunch of people the size of them. And so they're analyzing all of it. They're doing the, the risk assessment, right? David's, David's you know. He didn't even, I don't even think that thought crossed his mind. All he needed to know was, that guy's talking trash to my God. That's not going to happen. Could I die? I don't even think he thought about it, right? And who does that? Young men, right? That's, that's the way we are. Um, well, I put myself in that group. I'm not sure I belong there anymore, but that's what young men do. So, um, David was anointed by God, but he was also young enough not to overanalyze the consequences. I think that that had something to do with it. I think that's something to do with why young men are such a critical part of the overall redemptive plan of God throughout history. I think it's crucial that young men are, are standing in that kind of anointing today because there are Goliaths standing on the hill yelling their challenges. It comes in many shapes and sizes. But a whole lot of Christians are just cowering in the rocks, not willing to step up to the challenge for whatever, because they've done the risk analysis and they're afraid of the potential consequences. And I'm not saying a young man is the only one that can rise up and do that. I'm just saying in many cases, they're more likely to. And some of it's just because they're too dumb to know that that might be a bad idea. And I say amen to that. And I say praise God for that. I think it's intentional. So I'm glad that David did that that day. Um... To my my point, have any of you guys done things when you were younger that you look back at now and say to yourself, what in the Sam Hades was I thinking? Anybody ever done that? Okay, I'll raise my hand. See, the rest of you are a little hesitant, okay? So I'll I'll do full disclosure here Um, and give you an example. So many, many moons ago, and those of you who have an accurate gauge of this time period because you were around, just keep your mouth shut. But um, it was a long time ago. We're going to leave it at that. And... uh, a few guys and myself, we built the most legit launch ramp you've ever seen in your life. This thing was perfect. I, we, we didn't use geometry. It was just by eye and the help of the Holy Spirit. We came up with a launch ramp that would send you almost into orbit. It was great. And so um, the next step was we bought a bike at a yard sale, and then we bought a pool noodle. We got some tape, and we taped this pool noodle to the bike. And so I don't know if you've figured it out yet where this is going, but um, the pool noodles to make sure the bike would float, right? So then we take it down to the river. This is true, all true. And we'd see, we'd find a dock, and we put this lawn tramp on the end of the dock, and there's a big old hill leading up to this dock, right? Because normally rivers have a bank. So we, we're riding, and so what we're doing is we set this thing up in the end. We're riding down this hill, and then there's a path, I mean, a little bit wider than this plank of wood right here, where you have to ride across to get to the dock, and on either side are just like the sharpest, most ominous-looking boulders you've ever seen. And so we're going down this hill full speed, hitting the little path, get onto the dock, hit the launch ramp, and jump halfway across the Miami River. And uh, it was so fun. It was so incredibly fun that some guy drove by on a jet ski and traded me his jet ski for a jump on the bike. Like, not permanently, but he let me ride around on his jet ski because he wanted to jump this bike so bad. I think he did a backflip. He was better than us. But anyways, um, it was... It was it was totally fun, um, but you know. E- so evening started coming. We'd been jumping for a long time, and as as young men can tend to do, we begin to be bored with the excitement level of that adventure. And so, I don't know why, but somebody had lighter fluid, and uh, so we thought it's getting dark. You know what'd be cool if we put lighter fluid on the ramp and light it on fire, and then put lighter fluid on the tires, and then when we hit the ramp. The tires will be on fire, and we could take a video, and everyone will know how cool we are. And so, (laughs) we did that, okay? Um, I'm going to stop right there with the story about any more consequences, Uh, but the bottom line is, you could ask, you know, from the beginning, why? Like, what was the point? And that's the point. It was fun and cool, and we didn't care, and we didn't think about consequences, right? And that's a dumb example with very little potential gospel influence, (laughs) but... My point is, (laughs) we think negatively of the brain of a young man as underdeveloped and thus unable to properly assess risk and reward. But I believe that this was absolutely intentional in God's design. I believe that's why young men are called to step up, to be passionate, to be zealous. And I think that's a lot of why uh, David was able to take the first step of faith that day when Goliath was talking trash. And so, um, you take a young man with passion and strength and zeal and a little bit of recklessness, and uh, you put him together on mission with an older man who can point all that pent-up um, pent potential in, in the right direction, you see Goliath's fall, and, and God is glorified when that happens. And that's why we have a strong conviction that a, a healthy church has young reckless, zealous men that want to do passionate stuff for Jesus and can't really think through all the potential risks. They just, they don't care. They'll do whatever it takes to get the gospel forward. And you pair them with older men that have done some of that dumb stuff and can say, well, hold on, let's take all that energy and zeal and passion and let's point it towards something that's going to end up being fruitful. And that's when you can get something done. And so um, that's part of what I think Paul's laying out here. And uh, that's why we think being multi generational, as far as a church is concerned, is, is the healthiest way, and we, we pray and we ask God to continue to grow us in that way, so that we can have the maximum uh, potential effect for His kingdom and the gospel. Um, verse seven um, it says, "In all these, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds." I think this is further evidence that young men, uh, young men can and should be used by God for the furthering of His kingdom. Um, that the evidence I see here in verse 7 is the fact that uh, Paul groups these instructions to Titus, specifically with the instructions to young men. Uh, we don't know how old Titus was when Paul left him in Crete to set things in order and to appoint elders. But the fact that he groups these instructions to Titus with the instructions to young men, I think is a hint that he was on the a younger end of the spectrum. Uh, also, the reality is Titus... Would have a very difficult job in bringing things to order uh, among the churches on an island where people were known by their own poets as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Uh, also, Crete was a safe haven and harbor for piracy, and so this was an awesome mission field, right? And so Titus had a big job on his hands, uh, and it is likely that Paul gave this task to a young man with the fire and energy to get it done. Um. And so my my overall call is that there are many things that would try to pull on the attention of a young man today. I would just ask you to pray and ask God by his Holy Spirit to infuse inside of you the kind of holy boldness that drove David down into the valley of Elah. The kind of holy boldness that would drive Paul to go again and again back out. Taking the gospel wherever it was needed, even though he'd been beat and even though he'd been, you know, they tried to murder him and shipwreck and all of the trouble and all of the trial that he went through. Um, I would ask you to let the same love motivate you that caused Christ to persevere through the garden, through the pain and the agony of anticipation, and all the way to the cross on your behalf. I'm asking you, young men, to step up. I'm asking you, young men, to care deeply that the gospel gets to as many people as possible. We need you. And God has called you, and may that be enough. In Jesus' name, we see here that Titus is also uh, called to be an example in good deeds. Uh, this this example encouragement is really sobering. Uh, Titus was not only to uh, <clears throat> he was not only to teach and lead in word, but example as well. Uh, his task was too important to fall into the age old trap of hypocrisy. Kind of. Uh, do as I say, not as I do mentality, which does not work. Uh, i read you a quote here by Albert Schweitzer. It says, uh, example is not the main thing in influencing others. It's the only thing. The reality is that leaders, leaders will always lead by example, whether they intend to or not. And so we should keep that in mind. Uh, and Christian, simply because you're a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, you're a representative and an ambassador of the pure truth of the gospel. Wherever you go, your example is incredibly important. Um, we got to keep that in mind. We cannot serve Christ only in word. It must also be in deed. And you are influencing people. Let me just say that to you. You are influencing people. The question is, for what? In which way? Okay. Uh, he says also, with purity and doctrine. Okay, so I'm just running through these qualifications now, um, running down through verses 7 and 8, okay? So he says, with purity and doctrine. This means keeping first things first, uh, being unwavering in what God has made clear, uh, and not being someone who majors on minors and brings confusion and dissension, okay? So oftentimes people get priorities mixed up. They'll they'll kind of harp on things that maybe aren't as clear in the scripture and try to make that a really major deal and, and ignore things that God has made very plain should be emphasized. And so you've got to keep pure in doctrine. Uh, he says dignified. We've talked about this uh, in reference to older men. They were also given this uh, exhortation by Paul. But dignified, it's as it is with the same instruction to older men. It doesn't mean that you have to be a like a permanently stoic, stick-in-the-mud, just kind of overall mean person. Uh, That's not what he means by dignified. It means someone who knows when to laugh, but also when to be serious. And, um, you know, sometimes folks can only do one or the other, and there's a time for each. So to be dignified. um, This is him just encouraging in in what way his example uh, is going to influence others. So he says also to be sound in speech that is beyond reproach. Uh, Jesus said something that oftentimes convicts me. He says, I never say anything that I don't first hear the Father say or tell me to say. I'm like, oh, I cannot say that by a long shot, right? But I keep hoping that each day less of my words are idle and useless, and more of them are directed by God's Holy Spirit. Um, so he calls, he calls uh, Titus to be sound in speech that is beyond reproach. Uh, all young men, but especially those who want to represent Christ well and walk in a manner worthy of His name, must control their tongue. It is an absolute requirement. Uh, you will, you will end up making Jesus look bad and Jesus' people look bad if you cannot tame this tongue. James weighed in on this in James one twenty six. He said, "If you cl- get this, if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself, and your religion is worthless." Woo, Jason (laughs) didn't have the kid gloves on that day, did he? Your religion is worthless, right? You want to call yourself whatever whatever you think you are, don't control that tongue, all of it's for naught, right? So that raises up the emphasis on, hold on, what's coming out of my mouth? I better be careful about it. And this is also what Paul is encouraging Titus and He's like, brother, your speech, it's got to be above reproach. It's got to be to the point where People can't even bring accusation against you. You're not going to do perfect in that, but let me set the bar so high that you don't find yourself just falling short out of laziness, okay? We need to control this tongue. Uh, So the overall overarching principle of all that is, it's really telling all of us to not go popping off at the mouth. And if we do, repent quick and ask for God to help us control our speech. Um, And and and, and it's really important that we do that. It's really important that we emphasize that. It's really important that we pay attention to how we talk because it is tied to the reputation of God's people and thus God himself. I don't know about you, but I have met people that because people who so-called associated with God talked a certain way, they wanted nothing to do then with the God that they so-called represented. And, and I want to pray especially for God's grace to rest on the person that's the responsible party in that, the person that with their mouth misrepresented God Almighty. They need God's grace, and I, I greatly hope that they find it, because if they don't, it's going to be a bad day for them when they stand in front of King Jesus. That's, that's no light matter, and I don't ever want to be found in that category, but we see here uh, it says, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And so us, by God's grace and by his help and the help of his Holy Spirit, controlling what comes out of our mouth. Being, being James also said we got to be slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to listen, right? Um, I think we all could, could do good to, to think about that a little bit more. Watch what comes out of this mouth because the very fact that we associate with Christ means we represent him. And so our words are real important. Um, is anybody in here willing to admit that they've at some point not done so good a job representing Christ with the way they spoke? I'll go first to make it so it's not awkward for you. Yes, absolutely, and I'm very repentant. Uh, I'm very repentant about it right now. Even I'm convicted about it. I can feel it in my heart, and uh, it's it's terrible to think of the times that. Carelessly, I've just let words fly out of my mouth. It's it uh, it hurts me to even think about, and the only way I'm going to do better at it is trust Jesus more. Because in and of myself, uh, I'm a hothead with a bad temper, and I'm not that smart. So I need His help, and so um, I'm going to ask for that more often because I don't want to make Him look bad. He's done too much good. He's loved me too well for me to go around just because I want to be lazy with the gate over my mouth uh, to make him look bad in any situation. And I would also just encourage all of us, this has nothing to do with anything I have in my notes, I feel prompted by the Spirit, that if, if when you raise your hand you were thinking about a situation where you've made Jesus look bad, and you've not yet gone to the people involved and repented for that, it's a really cool thing takes a lot of humility on your part. You're going to need the help of Jesus to do this as well because you're prideful naturally. You okay with me saying that? I mean, you just are. None of us want to look bad. None of us want to admit we were wrong typically. But a really cool way... See, here's... Ah, this is why there is conviction for the Christian, but condemnation is an absolute tool of the enemy to, to nullify us and shut us down because what he likes to do is come in right after we say that dumb thing or right after we let something fly out of our mouth that just totally doesn't represent the way we really believe... Um, because of anger or just short-sightedness or whatever, the enemy wants to come along behind that and instantly tell you, boom, you just totally lost your witness with this group of people. Don't you be talking about Jesus and them now because then you'll be a hypocrite, right? No, bump that. That's not the, that's not the end of the road because here's what real Christians do. When real Christians mess up, here's what they do. They repent. And so the story's not over. Satan's a liar. He's dumb and he, and, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. So quit listening to him. Here's what the Bible says about it. You go to that person... And you say, listen, this came out of my mouth, uh, or maybe a bunch of stuff came out of my mouth at different times, just depending on your situation. Uh, And I've, I've, I've prayed about it, I've thought about it, I've seen in the scriptures where that was sinful and unhelpful, and I want to repent to you. Will you please forgive me for the fact that I did not represent Christ well? Now, here's what's going to happen most of the time when you do that. They're going to squirm, and they're going to act weird and awkward, because most of the time people don't talk like that, right? They don't talk about deep spiritual stuff or get down to the heart level. They won't be real used probably to somebody being open, transparent, and humble with them. But it's going to do a couple things. A, it's going to hit the reset button, because now you have totally shown them what Christians really do, and now your witness is 100% intact. Hallelujah. Hi, I'm imperfect and I messed up. Will you please forgive me for that? let's talk about Jesus. Here's why I can do this. Because I don't care, you know, I, I don't need to keep my street cred up. All I want to do is make sure Jesus looks good, and that's why I'm here talking to you like this, right? And, and you're going to make them think about, wow, I don't encounter people doing things like that a lot. Perhaps there's something different about this person, right? And so then we've cracked the door of their heart. So open, humble repentance If you've popped off of the mouth and you know it, if you've made Jesus look bad and you know it, make yourself a little list and uh, start going to people and and repenting openly. It's a wonderful thing, it's cleansing for your soul, and it'll help propel the gospel forward. Okay? Everyone excited about that? Yay! I'm going to go tell everyone I'm sorry for talking like a jerk. Okay, good. Uh, I'm excited about it. If, if any really cool stuff happens when you guys do that, let me know. It'd, it'd just be cool to hear that. Or let somebody know and I'd like to hear about it because um, I, I literally believe some people could come to Christ through you walking like that and being a real Christian and being humble. Absolutely. Okay? Uh, let's read verses 9 and 10, okay? It says, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, uh, that means not stealing but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Here's one of the cool things about doing um, expository Bible preaching where you go verse by verse. You don't get to skip stuff like this where some really difficult questions can come up, and a lot of times preachers do just skip stuff like this because this set of verses in 2015 is not necessarily a let's shout and get out the tambourines and dance around you know, sanctuary and make YouTube video, right? So um, a lot of times they just won't deal with this stuff because, uh, I'm going to stop right there. So they just sometimes don't deal with it, Um, but we're going to, okay? So uh, verse 9 brings us to an interesting issue. This verse and others, I don't know if you're aware of this, but this verse and others are often used by those who oppose God and his word to level the accusation that the Bible is pro-slavery and that the Bible fully condones it. And a face reading of this scripture could lead you to that understanding, especially if you're looking for ways to try to defame God or His Word, okay? Uh, The reality is that this country went to war with itself largely over this issue, people not understanding how to read these verses in their context. Um, And that's why it's really important to take into account the whole counsel of the Word of God and understand context as well when you're developing doctrine and or coming to try to understand what God thinks about something so that we can obey it, okay? The reality is that I could give you all a quick canned answer about this, and it would probably suffice for many, um, but because this is a church full of people who are actually on mission for Jesus and sharing their faith, I, I really I know you guys are going to run into situations where people will bring this stuff up. Well, well, God, God commands slavery, and the Bible's pro-slavery, and that means God's evil, um, and so, and, and there's a lot of times, man, where people, they grab onto something like that, they watch, you know, they, I don't, I'm not a YouTube hater, it's just, there's a lot of dumb stuff on there, so don't get me wrong, yay YouTube, there's some funny cat videos and whatever else, but um, there's also some real dumb stuff on there, and so somebody will watch this video, and somebody takes some verses out of context, and all of a sudden they're thinking, oh, well, God's pro-slavery, well, I'm anti-slavery, and I, well, clearly I'm more loving than God, and so, boom, that's their escape hatch to not have to deal with what the scriptures say to not have to deal with the fact that God made them and thus they are accountable to Him. Uh, They feel like they've gotten away from it. But because you guys are living for Christ really in your jobs and around your families and because you really are getting into conversations, you're going to encounter people that have heard these types of things. And so I want to take the time um, to really work on this. Uh, I know that you guys are going to want to lovingly answer those questions for those people, not just prove them wrong, but that you... You're going to have compassion for them and you're going to want them to be able to trust Jesus because you know that's the only place they're going to really find joy. And so we're going to take a minute and we're going to really work on this. And I said all that to kind of prep you for, we're going to spend a few minutes here talking about what does the Bible actually say about slavery. And some of you, if this is not something that, you know, hits home or something you think about on a regular basis, you could be tempted to check out, but... The implications for this, I'm, I'm just telling you, if you, haven't, if you haven't come up against it, I'm telling you there's a lot of people that misunderstand what the Bible says about this and disregard God because they misunderstand what the Bible says about this. And so, uh, if you care about being able to lovingly engage people with the gospel that may be challenged by this belief, I'm asking you to just dig in and uh, let's go on a little journey here and, and think through this together, okay? You guys ready? Let's do it. Here's the question Does the Bible condone slavery? With verses like this and others, um, first of all, let's, let's talk a little bit of history because we need that for the context. Um, the slavery that is described in the Old Testament, specifically in um, the New Testament, but a lot of times the slavery described was quite different from the kind of slavery that we think of today, uh, in which people are captured and sold as slaves. According to the Old Testament law, anyone caught selling another person into slavery was to be executed. Okay, so this could have been a quick can answer. We probably could have stopped with this. When somebody tries to level the charge that God's pro-slavery in the way that we understand it, because of the experience of the last few hundred years, um, I mean that, that's a serious charge, isn't it? If that was true, that would it would we'd really have to think a lot about whether we should serve this God, right? Let's. I, I want to be honest, man. I believe the Bible because I I think it's true, and I've actually searched out the evidence. Nobody just told me to believe this, and so you know I've, I've kind of got this closed mind just. I'm not ever going to think about stuff. I do want to think about it. And if the Bible was pro-slavery in the way we think about it today, that would be a serious problem about his character. You okay with saying that? I am. But that's not what it's saying. Okay? So here, let me read you a verse. This, this really, you can end the conversation most of the time with this, but we're going to do more work than this. Uh, here's Exodus 21, verse 16. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Okay, so we, we just went OT with it, so the guys were riding over on ships, stealing people from their families and homes. According to the Old Testament, that guy dies. Okay? This tells us that the kind of forced slavery that we've seen in times past based on race or other factors, and the forced slavery that we see today in the form of sex trafficking was punishable by death according to the Old Testament. Does that sound like God's pro-slavery to you? I don't think so. It sounds like kind of the most anti-slavery you could possibly be. You do that, you die. And I'm not personally opposed to the same punishment for sex traffickers today, but I digress. We will go no further down that line of thinking. Okay? Uh, There were two primary kinds of slavery described in both the Old and New Testament. One was prisoners of war, and that was a merciful alternative to killing them. And then there was those who sold themselves into slavery. Now, you could ask yourself the question, why would someone sell themselves into slavery? Uh, The reality is that they, in that time, uh, did not have welfare, and they did not have the kinds of social safety nets that we have today. And so instead of starving to death, either they or they and their family, um, because they did not have the means to provide for basic needs, they would literally sell themselves and sometimes their whole family into slavery. And what they did not need at that point was a wage, They needed shelter from the elements, and they needed food, or they were going to die. And so they were willing to make that transaction. And you could say, that is ridiculous. No one would ever sell themselves to someone and and let that person tell them where to go, at what time, and what to do when they got there, and what to wear, and what not to say or to say, just so they could have food and shelter. I'd say first, two things to that. First of all, we shouldn't assume what someone will do for food and shelter until we've gone without those things for a while, okay? Once you take a week, don't eat and sleep outside and then start thinking about whether or not, you know, you might (laughs) do something you didn't think you would formally do uh, to obtain those things that are needed for basic life. Um, So we shouldn't assume that. And uh, secondly, the second thing I want to say about it is what I just described sounds quite familiar actually. Let me read it to you again. No, you could say no one would ever sell themselves to someone and let that person tell them where to go, at what time, and what to do when they got there, and what to wear, or what to say and not say, just so they could have food and shelter. What does the situation I just described sound like? Most jobs, right? And so you could kind of stand on your, yeah, I'm free, high horse, but... Uh, that sounds like most jobs, and, and the reality is they just, the only real difference is they don't house you and feed you, they just give you a paycheck so you can do that yourself. For some of us, barely, right? So <laughs> that's, don't, don't be so high and mighty about, oh, I can't believe someone would ever sell themselves in order just to eat and have shelter. Uh, your job kind of has a lot of pull most of the time on what you do uh, and when you do it. So, um. Bottom line, we do not believe that the Bible condones slavery. Here's the question, though, if you want to push further. Then how do we square that belief that the Bible does not condone slavery with Paul's instruction here as well as the instructions given about slavery in the Old Testament? Okay, um, There's some cute one-liners I could throw out there, but they're not really sufficient if you're going to be dealing with a thinking person and you want to try to share the gospel with them. So I'm going to, we're going to work a little bit here. Um, if you look at the instructions given about slavery in the Old Testament you see that they are primarily about the treatment and the protection of slaves, okay? Uh, harming a slave was punishable up to death. Uh, they were not to work on the Sabbath, other protections, etc. Um, and I really believe that this could be understood at least to some degree in the way that Jesus dealt with divorce. So just go with me on a little bit of a journey here. In Mark 10, Jesus' question about divorce, right? So here's what the Pharisees come and say. They say, well, Moses said that we could give, we could divorce a woman as long as we gave her a certificate then we could send her away. That was a bummer situation, wasn't it? As long as I write her a piece of paper, go back to your mom's house, right? Um, that was terrible. Uh, but here's, here's what, so these are what the Pharisees are saying. This is what Moses said, man. We give her a certificate, she's out of there. And Jesus responds to that, right? And he, get, hear the heart behind what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, this was permitted. And then he hearkens back to creation in the first marriage and says, what God has joined, together let no man separate. And so he's saying, at that time, because of your lack of understanding and your hardness of heart, yes, that practice was permitted, but now the truth is here. I'm standing in front of you. The Word has become flesh, and I'm here to tell you. Here's how God thinks about marriage. And he hearkens all the way back to the beginning, when God put a man and a woman together and they became one flesh, and he called that a covenant. And he said, what's... What God has put together, let no man separate. Okay, so he's, he makes a kind of a corrective uh, understanding of, of the way they had thought about it before. Um, I, I will admit that Jesus never deals with slavery like this specifically, like he did with this issue of divorce. But I do believe that we see that, you know, in the way he went back originally to think about marriage, that originally men were created equally in God's image. And though sin may cause divisions among us, we are, we are brought together by the gospel. Okay, and so in the same way... In the same way, Jesus said, "Yeah, I know you were allowed to do that there, but but what I'm telling you is that that was just because you're stupid, and we had to, I had to get here to tell you how to think right, <laughs> right? And so, um, here, here's a scripture in case you're not buying that. Um, here, f- just further evidence the Bible does not condone slavery. Galatians three twenty eight says this: There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so, the gospel has an effect right, on how we should think about other humans and their dignity and their value. Um, So I, I do not think that the Old Testament, if you really break it down, I mean, A, I think the knockout punch I gave you right at the beginning is if you kidnap somebody and sell them or you're just found to have them, you die. Doesn't leave a lot of room for slave trading and or sex traffickers, right? And... Um, you know, I'll send a petition around afterwards for us to send up to Congress that we bring that back. All right. So, uh, that's o- o- old Testament. Does the New Testament condone slavery? Okay. I would say, even though Paul gives instructions for how slaves ought to behave here, that's what we read right here in verse nine of Titus two. Even though he gives instructions for how slaves ought to behave, this is not him condoning overall the practice of slavery. How can that be true? First of all, let me read you a quote from uh, Spurgeon on this. He says, I do not think for a moment that Paul believed that the practice of slavery ought to exist. He believed to the fullest extent that the great principles of Christianity would overthrow slavery anywhere, and the sooner they did so, the better pleased would he be. But for the time being, as it was the custom to have slaves, they must adorn the doctrine of God their Savior in the position which they were. Okay, There's a whole lot of evidence to support this idea. I think Spurgeon was right on this. Let me just give you some things to consider as you think through, was Paul pro-slavery and is the New Testament pro-slavery? Just think about this. Paul wrote the book of Philemon to appeal, the whole book, it's, it's a small short letter, but the whole deal was to appeal on the behalf of a guy named Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave that had come to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry. And Paul tells Philemon to receive Onesimus back No longer as a slave, but as a brother, and he tells Philemon to treat him no different than he would Paul himself coming to him. And so Onesimus is with Paul. Paul preaches Jesus to him. Onesimus is like, "Hey, I'm I'm a runaway slave, and you know my master's over here." And Paul says, "I'm about to write him a letter, and I'm I'm about to strongly encourage him in the gospel and with the authority that God has given me as an apostle." And he also says in there because Paul knew Philemon, he said, "Don't don't forget, man." What you owe me. We don't really know what he's talking about, but Paul must have done something that put Philemon in his debt. And he's leveraging all of his authority and all, you know, he's calling in the favor. When Onesimus gets there, yeah, he ran away, but he's a Christian now. And that changes everything. So he says, I'm telling you, you don't receive him back as a slave, you receive him back as a brother, and you treat him no different than you would treat me. I'm asking you to really judge and assess that. Does that sound like Paul is pro slavery? It sounds like Paul believes the gospel changes stuff and takes people from servant you know, and master to everybody's got one master and his name is Jesus. Okay. Also, uh, this is in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 23. This is more evidence that neither the New Testament or the Old Testament condones slavery in the way we think of it today. Uh, and everybody that tries to argue that God is evil because they believe that just hasn't really looked into the situation. This is Paul again. He says, were you called while a slave? He so so did, did you be, like one's a this situation. Were you called by God while you were a slave? He says, do not worry about it. But if you are able, if you are able also to become free, rather do that. If Christ called you and you were in servitude, he's saying, if you can become free from that bond, do that. Okay? He says, for he who was called In the Lord, while a slave, is the Lord's free man. Woo, come on. You want an anti-slavery verse? There you go. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Okay, so here's part of what I think is happening in Titus And you see these other instructions throughout the New Testament regarding slaves and their their obedience to masters. And that can really seem just like a straightforward, wow, the the Bible's pro-slavery. The South is right. We should have Confederate flags flying everywhere and jacked up Chevys. You know, just everywhere, right? Um, (laughs) If the South would have won, that'd be a great movie, wouldn't it? Um, I'm in Ohio, so I think I'm safe saying that. There's a river between us and them. Um, So... Here's some things you got to remember as Paul is writing these letters and trying to lay down track for the New Testament church to understand how to live in light of what Jesus has done. Okay, so up to a third of Roman citizens were slaves. Okay, Paul knew even if he denounced the practice straight up, that it would not change that practice immediately. And it would probably, in many occasions, make him having any ability to get the gospel into that audience a lot harder. And so instead of going at Slavery straight up, what he does is comes in with gospel principles that he believes in time should change the way people perceive each other and undo slavery from the inside out. Um, And so, even if Paul would have stood up and said, with all of his authority and as loud as he could, nobody should have slaves anymore, it, it wouldn't have changed. And so, he had right away, and so he had to speak to them, to those that were a third of the Roman citizens, were slaves. He had to teach them how to live for Christ in their current situation. I believe Paul's great hope is that the gospel eventually would obliterate slavery. Um, And I I think for, I don't think there's a whole lot of people legitimately um, contending for slavery out of the scriptures these days. I think most people that are practicing slavery modern day are just evil people and they don't really care what God thinks, okay? But there were times when people justified out of the scriptures because they they didn't look at the whole context of of the entire counsel of God. And so uh, the reality is Paul gives instructions to slaves because up to a third of the people that he was trying to minister the gospel to were in that situation. It wasn't going to change automatically. So he had to say to them, here's how you live in light of Christ, right? And so he's just being a good pastor. He's just considering the context of who he's ministering to. um, And that's why you see these instructions in here. This is not a you know, car blanche sign-off on the institution of slavery. Clearly, I think the, the verse in Corinthians tells us that. Paul knew his Bible. Paul knew the Old Testament. He knew what Exodus had to say about people that kidnap folks and keep them and try to sell them. Paul was the man. He, he knew the verses. And so uh, he was not pro-slavery, definitely not in the way that we most of the time think about it. Um, and really, he wasn't even real happy about this indentured servitude situation. But the reality is a lot of people, and, and you see, you know that he's talking about that. Some people would say, ah, you're just trying to sugarcoat it. It was slavery, slavery. Well, what I mean, what he says, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. What is, what is the command there? He's telling you, if you were free when you came to Christ, I don't care how bad the situation gets. I don't care how bare the cupboards are. You trust Christ because he's your provider. You need not become the slave of some men. You were bought with a price. You belong to the king. You'll be provided for He's coming against that institution, and it clearly shows you the context of what type of of servitude and slavery he's talking about, right? He's talking about people that were selling themselves into it. And so uh, we, we see no condoning whatsoever of someone just nabbing somebody and selling them into slavery. That's pitiful, and it's disgusting, and it's real hard to keep the anger about it righteous. I'll just say that. His command to those who were free when they were called to Christ was to not become slaves of men. So this shows us that this instruction, um, this is instruction to those who were slaves voluntarily. A different system that we have today, something that in our culture doesn't really cross over in the language, but clearly that's even the instructions he's giving to those who are bondservants, that's who he's talking to. Okay. Um, something else for us to consider Uh The Bible does not strictly forbid every sinful practice that man has ever created. Have you noticed that? That's all the Bible would be, and it'd be a lot thicker if it was trying to be an exhaustive list of everything we can come up with, right? So the Bible does not strictly forbid every sinful practice man has ever created. Instead, we are given spiritual and godly principles through which we judge right and wrong, right? So we apply the grid of what the totality of the scripture says to the idea of stealing people from their homes and selling them into slavery. Okay, so what do we know? We know that God created men and women in his image, that he loves them, that they have value. Um, We know that he commands us to love each other and to treat each other the way we would like to be treated. Uh, You know, that was two things, and I think I've pretty much undone the potential for us in any way to look through the grid of the Scriptures at the practice of slavery as we know it today, and, and for anybody to think that's okay. It's real stupid if you come to another conclusion other than that, okay? Um, And it's really just biblical laziness that anybody isn't able to defend what the scriptures say about it, or that anybody would make the accusation that God is pro-slavery. He's not, at all. The totality of what the Bible teaches leads us to the understanding that we are equal in value because we're made in God's image, and thus we should not own each other, but love each other instead. Um, so here's a question that could come out of this. Very fair question should be asked. I'm glad you're asking it. How does a slave, whether they are voluntary or not, right? Because you could accuse me of splitting hairs here. Well, it's still somebody owning somebody else, and that's wrong. So, And, and, and Paul's saying here, they, they should be submissive, not pilfering. They should steal from their masters. They should serve with a smile on their face. How is it that a slave, whether they're voluntary or not, being submissive and honest in service of their master, how does that do what this verse says? It says that that they're not pilfering, but they're showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. How does an obedient slave, whether voluntary or not, how does that adorn the doctrine of God? It's a great question. I'm really glad as you're thinking through this you thought of that. Let me answer it for you. By their humble submission... They were presenting the truth of the gospel and displaying its power, even in their lowly position. Let's think about this for a second. Because this slavery, which was voluntary in its, in its servitude, this slavery where a man or a woman would realize, guys, follow me on this, where a man or a woman would realize they were in desperate need and they were completely unable to provide for themselves what was needed for life, So they had to give themselves totally and completely to someone else, relying on that person, trusting that from their strength and their resources that that person would take care of them. Come on, Love City. That was you and me. That was me when I was broken and I was dead in my sin and I had no hope. That was me. Standing across the chasm much too far for me to jump across. Didn't have the tools to build a bridge to get there. I had no chance. I was that slave. I had no option. I would have starved and died if it was left up to me. I was in a worse condition than any slave that ever found themselves starving and out in the open. that had to sell themselves into slavery because I was dead on the inside. I was overcome. I was enslaved by sin. But I was given this option. I was given this option to come to one who said, I'll set you free, and I'll provide for your needs, and I'll love you. I'll take you from death to life, from darkness to light. I'll make sure you're provided for, and most importantly, aside from all that, I'll make sure that you can have hope for eternity. I was that slave, and I went from that desperate, destitute, broken wretch to a man that now I can, I can gladly and proudly proclaim, yes, I still got chains on my wrist. Hallelujah. But they are bound to one who lifts them up for me. They are bound to one who holds me there. I was bought with a price. And it wasn't shekels of silver or gold. It was the precious blood that flowed from the veins of Christ. That was the price that was paid for me. And so I happily today submit myself humbly to the service of that good master. I'm happy to do it. And that's why Paul said to these guys in that day, listen, as long as this institution exists, you humbly submit yourself. You humbly. It's just like he could say this to us today in our jobs, right? I mean, it's exactly the same. Show up this time, do this certain work, say this, wear this, and and don't mouth off. And don't steal anything, right? That's the description of modern day commerce and the way everything works. So and the same way he instructed these bond servants of that day who had sold themselves in order to provide for the needs of them and their family, in the same way he tells them, do that job with submissiveness. Do that job with humility. Do not steal from that master. And in so doing, you will adorn. You will make beautiful. You will illuminate and point to the beautiful doctrine of redemption that comes through the gospel. And so I'm telling you today, dear one, go to your job. Quit having a bad attitude about it. Go to your job. Don't steal from that job. Make sure that absolutely everything you do is is fully above reproach. Humbly submit yourself. Be a servant to all. And in so doing, you will adorn the beautiful doctrines of grace. You will point to the beauty of the gospel. Amen. 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 Praise God today. I'm thankful that with joy in my heart, overflowing, I can have these words on my lips. I am a slave. I am owned today. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. Highest price ever been paid for anything. The precious, perfect blood of the Lamb of God flowed down a cross that day. That bought me. And so today, I want to serve him with all submissiveness and humility. Not pilfering, not complaining. Not complaining. And in every way, I want to serve him as as a humble servant as I possibly can so that I may adorn the doctrines of grace and the gospel. I'm a happy slave today. I'm honored to carry that. And I want to bear the scars that come of a life lived hard and fast and pushing with all of the energy I possibly can. I want to echo Paul's sentiment that I want to pour myself out for the sake of the gospel. I want to spend everything I got and expend even myself for the sake of other souls. I want to get to the end of this thing broken and battered and with just enough energy to limp across the finish line. And then I want to hear, well done, come, come and rest. Will you do that today? Will you forsake the things that are other masters over you? Jesus said plainly, you can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in sex. You can't serve God in addictions. You can't serve God in all this other stuff. Put those idols down. Grind them into powder and let them float down the river. Don't mess with them anymore. There's only one master worth serving. There's only one master who's really going to be good to you. There's only one master who's going to deliver on the promises that he's made. His name is Jesus Trust him today, please. Please. Any other master will violate you. Any other master will lie to you. Any other master will lead you astray. You will not find joy in the service of anyone but the good king. Christ Jesus, our Lord, the one who proved love. He didn't come just talking words, did he? He said stuff, but then he backed it up because he walked that road. He carried that cross. He let him stretch his arms out. He let him drive the nails in. And he bled and he died paying a price that you and I never could have paid. And he bought us all up from the masters that we used to serve. The evil taskmasters that would drive us ragged. And he's invited us in to carry a light burden, a joyful burden, a beautiful burden. We get to carry the beautiful gospel. Praise God today. May we be a people that are united by passion for the gospel. May we be a people who work together with and love those who are older or younger than us for the sake of the mission. May we be a people who live as obedient slaves to our benevolent master, our Savior King, who freed us from the forced slavery to sin, and freed us to voluntarily submit our hearts and lives to him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. I thank you that we can be joyous bond slaves today. I thank you that we can celebrate the fact that you are our faithful master. I thank you, Lord, that you had what it took to pay the price for all of us, that you bought us away from our debtors. That you've made us free today to serve you with all of our hearts. I thank you, Lord, for even even the instructions in the Old Testament that talked about how if a slave decided he really loved his master and wanted to stay, that there was a way that they could they could mark his ear and, and and he could serve that master forever because there was love and there was relationship there. Lord, I ask that more and more our relationship with you would reflect that kind of situation. That Lord that we would not be coerced into loving you or serving you, that it would not be by uh, fear or or coercion that we submit our lives to you. But, Lord God, it is out of the fact that you have been so incredibly good to us that when, when we would be given the option to go doing anything else, Lord, that we would turn it down flat, that there would be no temptation there, that all we want for the rest of our lives and all of eternity is to stay in relationship with you, the good master. You're faithful, Lord God. You've been nothing but good to us. Lord, forgive us for the times when we don't see it. Forgive us for the times when we act like you're not the benevolent, beautiful master that you are. Forgive us for the times that we act like there's other masters that got a better deal for us, that we run and serve them and we expend ourselves and pour ourselves out for the fame and the glory of someone other than the one who made us and died for us that we could be reconciled to you. Forgive us, Lord God, for our tendency towards idolatry Forgive us, Lord, that we sell ourselves often to lesser masters who only want to hurt us in the end. Please forgive us for these things, Lord. And give us wisdom. Give us eyes to see our tendency to do that, God. Help us never, ever, ever, ever to do it again. May we lay ourselves down. May we humble ourselves. May we serve, Lord, with joy and passion. May we pour ourselves out, as Paul said, for the sake of the preaching of the gospel.